Welcome to High Noon, where we discuss controversial subjects with interesting people. I'm Inez Stepman of the Independent Women's Forum, and today we have a very special, somewhat unusual High Noon episode for you. I'll be speaking with two journalists covering uprisings for freedom inside two very different regimes, halfway around the world from one another, that nevertheless seem to not only have key similarities with each other, but also warnings for us in America. First, we speak to Barbara at Allah It's Barbara on Instagram who has been covering the heartbreaking and moving protests across the island of Cuba, where the communist regime has been repressing basic liberties and creating scarcity of basic items like food and medicine for more than six decades. She gave us a real view into what it's like to live in Cuba beyond the props of white beaches and five-star hotels that are displayed to tourists and, as we discussed, useful idiots. As one Cuban reggaeton pop star tweeted, quote, from going through so much hunger, we ate fear. Next, I interview Hannah Libakova, a journalist that for the past year has put her freedom on the line to cover the mass protests against, quote, the last dictator in Europe, as he's known, Alexander Lukashenko in Belarus. There also, protesters are facing beatings, arrest, and torture to call for democracy and the right to self-determination as a free people. It's remarkable how similar the dynamics, even the psychological dynamics, are in many authoritarian regimes. Crush information, cut off the internet, intimidate dissenters, use tactics like threatening people's jobs before resorting to physical repression. These are the similarities of authoritarian regimes across very different peoples and cultures. The reason I recorded this special episode of High Noon is to stand as both an act of solidarity, but even more importantly, to stand as a warning. We remain extremely lucky in our American privilege. When you're canceled in America for heterodox thought, it might mean you lose your job or your social circle. We're still a long way from being thrown in prison, disappeared, or tortured for speaking against the dominant narrative. But America is exceptional because of its founding values and its constitution, not because these experiences of want and oppression, unexceptional in the history of the world, can't happen here too. In a recent essay posted on Substack on Antonio Garcia Martinez, who lost his job when his published fictional novel about the tech industry ran afoul of the woke Twitter brigades, wrote poignantly, Some mistakes a free people get to make only once. We are fortunate to still enjoy freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and other liberties protected by our Constitution. But our Bill of Rights is only what Madison referred to as a parchment barrier in Federalist 48. It has to be given life by a culture and people who cherish their freedoms. As you'll see in this episode of High Noon, those freedoms are all too easy to lose and extremely difficult to get back. It can be done in this solidarity poster behind me, which was used to rally people in Poland to throw out communist tyranny, proves it can be. But it's far better and far easier to fight to turn back from the cliff than it is to rebuild from the bottom of it. I hope you enjoy my conversations with these two brave women today and remember the stories of those fighting right now in 2021 for the liberty and representative government that we must continue to hold as precious. As we all know, on Sunday, July 11th, the historical uprising began on the island of Cuba, my first guest today, Barbara, her Instagram handle is Ola It's Barbara, um, has been one of the leading journalistic voices pushing out video and stories from Cuba, as well as helping to popularize support protests in countries like the United States and Germany, where she resides. So um, welcome, Barbara, to High Noon. Hi, thank you for having me. Could you first explain to people who maybe are just um, sort of seeing these headlines in the news why now? Why now after 62 years are so many people in Cuba risking their lives to oppose the communist regime there? Mm. Yeah, great question. Um, I think to really understand the present, you need to understand the past and the history of the country. Um, 
I know this has been something that's been ongoing, like you said, for 62 years, but, um, with everything when it came to COVID and just the, the climate was becoming more and more, um, it has, it had reached a point where people just could no longer handle it anymore. It almost kind of resembled like the 1990, 90 decade where they call it the special period. And that's kind of like the time period where a lot of Cubans didn't really have any access to any food. Like just things are very, very scarce when it came to accessibility to just basic needs, like, food and medicine. And so it was kind of reflecting that. Um, but I think also the the Cuban government will try to um, paint this whole situation and focus it, focus it on the embargo or focus it on uh, the rising cases of COVID. But essentially, it has nothing to do with that. Because if you hear what the people are shouting in the streets of just across the country, they're shouting for freedom. And I think, you know, it's a culmination of everything. It's it's a complex situation because it is has been 62 years that so many fabricated things have led up to this moment. You know, you're you're part of the Cuban diaspora, I believe, right? Your your family yeah. fled the regime. You know, could you tell us maybe a short history of what the regime has been like for the last um, you know, six decades and why your family left? Mm-hmm. So for the last six decades, um, to understand just kind of that long period of history in Cuba, one needs to understand it comes in waves, right? And so at the beginning, things weren't so bad, right? Because obviously when Fidel Castro took power, he'd made a lot of promises. And so to almost in a way keep those promises, he made everything still kind of seem like how things were before, which, you know, when I speak to my own family and even to my father, who's 84 years old, and he lived in Cuba before, way before Fidel Castro even came into power, there was this sort of abundance of goods, of opportunities. The universities were thriving. You know, there was uh, the universities, even like the hospitals and everything. Cuba always prided itself on having the best um, medical schools and the best doctors and all that stuff. And then, you know, as the time went by and the decades went by, then you started seeing this differentiation of like from abundance to then scarcity. And that was primarily one of the reasons why my family left. I mean, you know, my parents are have a 20 year gap period. So they each left for different, but very similar reasons. Obviously, you know, there was no opportunity that was ever going to give them the opportunities that I have that my, you know, siblings have, you know, that's what they wanted a better future for their family. Um, I know that whenever I do speak to my dad, because I, he, I find him to be very interesting since he is part of Cuban history. I mean, he was born during the Batista regime and that was different. Like I asked him about what, what's the difference between, you know, the revolution of the 1950s when Fidel took power and now, and he said, well, the only difference is that the people were back then, in this case, the rebellion was armed. Versus now, the people don't even have any access to fight back. So they're essentially getting killed, and they're just using their bare hands to defend themselves versus they're going up against guns and gas, I mean, gassed, and, and a bunch of atrocities. I mean, I've even seen images and videos of people having um, the police releasing German shepherds on people. Um it's, 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 it's brutal. It's bloody. Um, but when it comes to my family, their, their story was that I simply want a better future for our family and also mm-hmm. freedom of speech. That was something that, that my father didn't have something that he comes from a very small town in the countryside of Cuba. 
and people there knew each other. Everybody knew each other. And then he started to realize that people were going missing. And he's like, well, that's a little odd. Um, and eventually as you know, some of his friends were going missing and him finally realizing like, wow, my friends are getting assassinated um, by these so-called revolutionaries. I don't have a life here. I, I, I just, no. And so he left along with the rest of my family. So what, what is next for um, these current protesters? I mean, it seems like things, it's hard to tell because the internet is so spotty, but it seems like things are a little bit quieter now than they were a few days ago. Um, is this going to be a longer, uh, like a longer struggle where people are people reorganizing or has the regime kind of succeeded in tamping down uh, the, the mo- most of the protests? I mean, where does it stand? We're now on at Friday, the, the 16th. Um, where does this protest stand as of now and what's its future? Uh, you know, there's a mix of uh, opinions, right? Because every region of Cuba is different when it comes to the type of people. You know, I know some people have talked about this region, like I'm so embarrassed because everybody there is uh, a snitch. And this region, oh, I'm so embarrassed because nobody there wants to do anything. I think what's going on right now, there is a lot of fear and the government is using a lot of fear tactics on people. I've heard things as like, if you go out and protest, you're going to lose your job. Um, it's almost like at that risk now that it's like they're trying to find all ways and any ways possible to keep things under control. But I, from when I talk to people on the Cuban island, I know that right now I think they're reorganizing and finding other ways too, because also as much as you can take out into the streets for so long, physically and mentally people get tired and they have to then regroup and reorganize. Cause that's something about this movement. Cause it feels different, right? Everybody, especially the Cuban American or just the Cuban diaspora is saying this feels different. Um, and I think what's going on right now, and this is the question that everybody's asking is what's missing here is a leader. There isn't anybody, there isn't a face right now that's really leading this movement. And I'm not surprised because out of, you know, the fact that if there is a leader to this movement, they do run a risk of getting killed. Um, And we've seen this time and time again in historical, you know, revolutionary social causes movements, right? If we're going to look at like uh, the civil rights movement for black lives um, in the 60s with Martin Luther King Jr., And so right now, I think it's just a matter of trying to figure out like what's going to happen next. But I can guarantee you this is not going to end like that in a matter of just five, six days. This is only the beginning. (laughs) You you mentioned um, some alternative explanations um, and and you you said those are not the heart of the protest. Right. So we hear Mm -hmm. that the U.S. embargo, regardless of what people's sort of opinions on whether that helps or hurts, um, the U.S. embargo is not the primary Mm-hmm. cause of these these demonstrations a poor response to covid is is certainly um likely to be happening in cuba but is not the primary cause of of these demonstrations yep. you know there's been some responses in the united states from organizations like black lives matter or from the democratic socialists of america that have really pointed to those alternative explanations um in, in an attempt to essentially, in some cases, to outright support the re- the regime, um, but in other softer statements, more just to try to blame something else other than the communist regime um, in Cuba 
for the fact that people are now willing to have dogs set on them. They're willing to be arrested. They're willing to um, risk their lives, really, to to protest for liberty and for democracy on the streets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, what would you say to folks in the United States who or elsewhere who are reluctant to actually point the finger squarely at the regime um, and the heart of the regime for the reason as the reason why people are willing to risk their lives? I mean, my message to those people who don't want to blame the regime is that it's blatant privilege. Um, people tend to have these very big opinions about what is going on when I would love to invite them to actually see the real Cuba, not the Cuba that Cuba wants or the Cuban government wants you to see, which is like Paradero, you know, the really nice beaches that, by the way, none of the locals really do have access to those beaches. I remember my mom telling me when she was there um, as, a, as a young teenager that she wasn't allowed to go to any of those beaches. Um, and and I invite them to check it out. I actually, you know, even invite them to go into a hospital. And I'm not talking about the hospital that's for the elitists, for the tourists. No, I'm talking about go to a hospital that locals go to. Because when I went to Cuba in 2018 for the first time, I didn't want to see any of that. In fact, I mean, because I knew everything, right? I grew up in Miami. Everybody there tells you the real deal details. Um, And I remember sitting at a restaurant there and like not wanting, Baradero specifically, not wanting to like enter because it was so flashy. And it was like, you could tell that it was well kept and the decor was definitely imported from elsewhere. I don't know where they got it, but it seemed very much like you could find that at home goods or TJ Maxx. And I was sitting there with a friend and the taxi driver and I could tell not just myself, but even the taxi driver who was taking us around feeling like this was the first time he had ever sat in the restaurant like that. Um, And just looking at like things like you know water that was imported from italy and just all these uh, like all the just the abundance of things to me obviously to people who are in support of the communist regime if you see all of this you're like oh there's nothing going on here like if you check the hashtag Baradero, um the hashtag Baradero on instagram there's currently tourists there right now like russian tourists and i'm like are is no are they, what parallel universe is this it is baffling to me how people could just continue on treating this country just because it's considered small and not powerful as something that is a joke. I mean, I don't, I can't even name the facts and figures. I would be more than willing to mention this, but I'm sure there are beyond the millions of Cuban people that have had to flee this country for a better future. And that alone will tell you everything. There's Cubans everywhere in this world. I've heard of Cubans even in New Zealand. How far is that from Cuba? So is it because we just like to travel the world? That's not it. If you speak to any Cuban person, and and if you really think about it, it is what it was back in its glory days, a paradise. And why would anybody want to leave that? The finger has to be pointed at the Cuban regime or the Cuban dictatorship. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's... it's, um it seems to be a feature of a lot of these, these regimes that they set up a parallel kind of um, (laughs) demonstration for people who are coming uh, to visit, whether they're tourists or they're um, diplomatic ambassadors or so on. I mean, the USSR did the same thing. Um, Even, even under the government of Stalin, there were of course, quote unquote journalists there. Uh, Walter Mm -hmm. Durante of the New York times wrote his Pulitzer prize winning column saying that there was nothing going on, nothing terrible going on in the USSR. Of course, at the same time, um, there were millions of Ukrainians starving to death. Um, 
Hmm. She famously covered up. It, 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 it definitely seems to be a common feature across the world that these regimes will set up, you know, pardon my, my bluntness here, but they'll set up a, a facade for the useful idiots from, from the West who will come and, and praise what's happening there. I mean, what, what do you think that, I mean, why do you think that people from the West consistently fall for these kinds of, of facades? I mean, it, especially in the age of the Internet, it's so easy to see that this is not actually the day-to-day life in these regimes. I really would love to invite them to a conversation. I've never really spoken to somebody to my face and uh, come and attack me about what it is that they believe so deeply about this sort of ideology that seems to be so thriving. Because if that is the case and they love this sort of political view, then I invite them to move there. That's my thing. Like that's something about like even when the Black Lives Matter uh, organization decided to put out that statement. For me, it's like, and I even love that Senator Marco Rubio um, tweeted this out where um, and posted this on my social media. And it said, if anybody from the Black Lives Matter movement um, wants to move to Cuba, my doors are open. <laughs> my office doors are open um, because it's true. And I, I think even with something like that, it needs to be lived like, Everybody who has these, again, like I'm going, just going to go back and reiterate my point, but everybody that has these big opinions are just saying it in the comfort of their home where they have access to food and Wi-Fi and the Cuban people don't have that right now. So I don't understand what it is that is so great about this sort of ideology. It works on paper, but it does not work in reality. You see that time and time again throughout Latin America. Cuba is not the only country. You see that in Venezuela. You see, you, you saw that in the seventies and in the eighties in Chile you saw that in Argentina, you saw that in Nicaragua to this day, like there are several places where you see this sort of political ideology not work. Obviously, in present day, Cuba is at its most extreme when it comes to this ideology, but it is what it has been for the past 62 years. So if there's one story, um, one particular story that's moved you the most, because you have done such a great job, as I said in, in the intro, amplifying the stories, the, v- the very few stories that have been able to get out, because of course the regime has initially completely blocked internet service there. Now it's sort of spotty and cutting in and out. Um, mm. You know, has there been one story that just maybe you could barely even stand to look at, but you th- think is important for people people to know? So the one that I saw, it was a video. It was these policemen going up, climbing a ladder up a rooftop of a building. Because at this time, uh, at this point, um, there was a lot of police chasing and dragging young boys to join their side and then obviously fight their own people. Um, and there, and this boy was up on the rooftop. I don't know if he was trying to hide. I'm not so sure, but from what I read, he had like a mental disability and clearly he couldn't really fend for himself. I don't think he really had a weapon and they came after him with guns and they shot him. I don't think he survived that because from what I saw, he didn't get up and that was rather, rather moving uh, that was really hard. I mean, there's so many, I can't even name one. That's one of the many that I've seen. I think another one that I saw that was really heartbreaking was that this young boy was, um, protecting his father from getting beaten by the police. So he like, co- he went on top of his dad to cover him. 
um, on the ground. Um, and that was really, that was really hard to see. Um, and this is just few, some of the few cases of the many that we probably haven't even seen. Yeah. Um, you know, that's that the people are willing to risk that for freedom. I, I think, as you said, says it all. Um, just a final question, you know, if, if you are not in Cuba, if you are in America or Germany or um, in one of these Western countries where we do have freedom of speech and we are able to, to speak out, you know, what would you recommend people, people do to support the, the freedom fighters really in, in Cuba, the people who are risking, um, you know, beatings and, and worse and um, arrest and, and even death to, to try to, to regain their freedom. Um, you know, how, how would you, tell us to, to support them? First thing is add pressure to your local, state, federal government. Um, what Cuba needs more now than ever is the international support. That is president in the, in the, in the movement, in, the, in writing this wave of change, um, because everybody from the inside is asking for help. Like there, I keep hearing voice messages on WhatsApp of people in their just begging for, I could hear it in their voice. They're just crying for help from the outside because they cannot do it alone. And in that, I'm hoping that adds enough pressure for these governments from the outside to figure out a plan. I know it's very controversial to talk about a, a military intervention inside the country and to each their own opinion on that. I have my own thoughts on it. I do believe that there should be some sort of military intervention. Don't know from who, but I think at this point that needs to be done. And if anybody is trying to figure out, okay, what can I do? What, what should I ask my government? Just ask for them to pay attention to Cuba and do something. That's step number one. Um, step number two is to share on social media because I feel like I, plus everybody else who is like, of the Cuban diaspora is sharing this, but I don't really see many people who aren't a part of that community sharing on social media. It is the least that you can do. Um, and also sign a petition. There's a petition on change.org to really bring more awareness on this. And another one as well on top of it, there's tons of protests across the world for Cuba. Join one in whatever city near town near you join one in solidarity for the cause, because I know there was a lot of social justice movements last year that people went out on the streets and it was all over the world when it happened, for example, the Black Lives Matter movement for George Floyd. And that was a worldwide thing. And we're just asking for the same response for Cuba because this is going on for way too long and nobody cannot stand this for another 62 years. And it's done. This has to end. Thank you so much, Barbara, for continuing to, to push out these voices from Cuba and, and for joining us today on High Noon. Thank you. Thank you. If you're listening to this podcast, you've just heard an appeal from a journalist covering the protests in Cuba against the communist regime there that has been abusing and oppressing its people for more than six decades. Now we'll be turning from Cuba, just a short boat ride away from our Florida shores, to another regime on the opposite side of the world that uh, has, seems to have some remarkable similarities. In just a couple weeks, we'll be at the one-year anniversary of an election that sparked mass protests in Belarus, a former Soviet country on the border of Russia that's short since shortly after the USSR's dis dissolution, has been ruled by an anti-democratic strongman, Alexander Lukashenko, who's often referred to as Europe's last dictator. One year ago, thousands poured into the streets to protest a rigged election which recrowned Lukashenko, 
over an opposition leader who had become a surprise, surprising rallying point um, to that Lukashenko regime. One year, however, uh, one year later, however, Lukashenko still sits in his palace, um, from which he most recently thumbed his nose at the international community by forcing a commercial plane in his airspace to land so that he could arrest a journalist on board. Hanna Libakova is a journalist from Minsk, Minsk, Belarus. Uh, she's a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. She's previously worked with Radio Free Europe as well. And uh, most importantly for this conversation, she has been providing wonderful coverage at the protests for the last year, as well as the response of the Lukashenko regime, its treatment of journalists, and the response to all of this um, from the West. So welcome, Hannah, to High Noon. Thank you for coming on. Hello. So let's start with an overview of what the last year has really been like in Belarus for, for the many Americans who aren't following the struggle halfway around the world. What What is it like uh, there? What are protesters facing there? Um, well, I usually say that what's happening in Belarus right, right now should be called lawlessness um, because people are being detained for going out to the streets, uh, go, you know, doing grocery, for just walking downtown, for wearing uh, some clothes in national colors, which is red and white, and this is apparently forbidden in Belarus. Um, it's um, also we make jokes that there is a real equality in Belarus right now because uh, basically every social, professional, age group, gender group is facing repressions. Um, pensioners, businessmen, artists, um, whoever. So they are all detained. Um, they are all being repressed. They're fired. They're threatened. There are currently more than 500 political prisoners in the country, and there are thousands of people in prison. And basically, since August last year, there have been more than 35,000 detentions, which is a lot for a country of nine and a half million. So the scale of repressions is incredible. But um, this is not only about Lukashenko and his regime. I think what, what I'm also trying to, to show is that people, um, a lot has changed in the first place. The evolution of the society is incredible. People um, finally stood up to the regime. Uh, they've, they are united. They show solidarity all the time. They show that they just want this regime to, to, to go. They just want Lukashenko to um, resign and they want a free and fair election. So this kind of willingness to have democracy in the country is very important. And I think uh, that's something that I admire. That's something that gives me a lot of hope, despite all this kind of darkness, all these repressions that are currently taking place in the country. One of the most remarkable things um, about the protests in Belarus is how long they've gone on. And as you say, in the face of mass detention in some places, um, you've reported on torture that's happened in these detention centers. Uh, in the face of all that, these these protests, uh, whether, you know, in, in mass or, or in smaller ways or in, in um, you know, sort of less organized ways have, have continued to go on month after month after month. I mean, what what is the end game here? Um, I, I know you can't predict for sure, but uh, it doesn't seem like this movement is going to be able to be quashed permanently. It, they just keep coming back and coming back no matter what the regime does to them. Um, I do agree that, well, firstly, there is no way back. I think people have said their final no to, to Lukashenko and because he, um, well, he's been in power since 1994. 
And basically, he's the first and the only president that Belarus, uh, Belarusians have seen. And they're just tired of him. And they, um, they're tired of his mismanagement, of his lies, falsifications, manipulations, of his disrespectful attitudes towards uh, the elderly, towards, towards women, towards workers, basically everyone. Um, and even before the elections, when I traveled across the country, I saw that um, just so much has changed. And I knew that he would not have, um, he, he wouldn't win the elections. Um, and what we've seen after the elections, all these thousands um, of people, you know, protesting basically every Sunday, um, that was a sign of this, you know, immense, incredible change. Um, and because he reacted with uh, so much brutality that people... Um, just understood that, you know, this is not someone they, they want to see in power. And people feel disgust. And when there is this kind of emotional change, when there is, um, you know, so many lines have been crossed, that um, just there is no room for a compromise at the moment. That's why Lukashenko has to increase repressions, because he knows, he perfectly understands that uh, the majority of people currently want change. Uh, they want new free and fair elections. They see it as a solution to this crisis. Um, and this is something that he's super scared of. Um, this is, uh, you know, that's why the commercial flight was forced down because he just wanted to show how strong he is by arresting a young blogger, basically a journalist who, um, who he considered his personal enemy. Um, and that's why a lot of repressions basically are taking place now and it's just increasing. Only today, dozens of journalists uh, have been detained. My, my, my former colleagues, my, uh, my friends, yesterday and a few days ago, there was an attack on human rights defenders. Um, dozens of organizations have been closed. So it, it kind of, it seems that Lukashenko wants to clean up the field completely. He wants to, to destroy the... Um, any potential dissent in the country, like any ecosystem, any initiative that was active. Um, so that's his goal because he's very scared of this um, um, kind of willingness of people to to see change in the country. And that's why he just wants to prevent that. Um, he feels just backed in a corner and this is not a kind of actions of a strong man. Let's talk about that plane landing, right? Because for a lot of Americans, this is the first time that they uh, really had any interaction or, or read in the news about uh, the Lukashenko regime. You know, what has the response to that been from the the West, um, from America, from the international community? Because I mean, th this is this this is an international terrorist incident, right? Like the the um, the government forcibly landed a commercial airliner, including the people from uh, many different countries who were on board in order to arrest a blogger that was critical of his regime. I mean, this violates all kinds of international norms. What has the response been to, to that? Um, I would say that the response has been um, stronger, perhaps, than Lukashenko expected. Because if you look at the response uh, that followed after the elections, the EU, the EU introduced three packages of sanctions. But since December, 
basically. Uh, there was no um, significant response to, to, to repressions, right? Because, well, politicians did not see protests on the streets because people, people have been repressed. They're just scared to come out to the streets. They have been sent to jail for many years for that. Um, but because politicians did not see these protests, uh, kind of no reaction, no response followed. And then the kind of Belarusian issue started to disappear from international agenda. And then Lukashenko basically helped democratic forces in a way uh, by forcing this um, this plane down to, to land in Minsk. And um, because it, it's just so outrageous, it, it violates obviously so many international conventions. It violates, violates basically the common sense, right, of how we function in the world. In, in the globalized interconnected world. So firstly, uh, kind of the immediate response was that the EU and other countries banned flights over, over Belarus, over the Belarusian airspace. And this is something that obviously affects the um, industry um, on the one hand. On the other hand, it also affects immensely the, the regime because um, Kind of, there is this monopolist uh, in Belarus, and uh, they um, um, like air, airplane, right? Um, air company, and they lost a significant amount of revenue. Um, another issue is that sanctions were very kind of swiftly introduced. Um, individual financial sanctions, but also sectoral sanctions. And that's something that Lukashenko is very much scared of. Uh, that's basically the only. Uh, tool, the only mean and the only kind of response he is reacting to. And he immediately uh, kind of started to, um, uh, you know, chaotically criticize, uh, you know, the EU, the West, he blamed Angela Merkel for um, kind of trying to uh, a co-attempt in the country. Um, and that's something that really kind of scares him because he he's really scared of losing support uh, from his oligarchs, from from those um, kind of businessmen, very important ones, right? Um, at the same time, I would say that while the EU has reacted very um, promptly, very swiftly, there are still loopholes in those sectoral sanctions. And while we think that, you know, this was a very kind of strong, effective response, as long as these loopholes are not closed, um, the sanctions would not be effective. But the Belarusian regime is still able to sell some products of, of potash industry, of oil industry to the West. So these sanctions would not affect um, the, uh, the regime in Belarus as much as we uh, perhaps expected. Um. Can you expand a little bit on the role that journalism has played in all of this, that a free press, the importance of a free press has played in this? Because it, it really seems like, um, you know, he was willing, Lukashenko was willing to flout international norms um, in order to get his hands on a single blogger. I mean, does that speak to the the power of trying to control the information? I mean, we're seeing the same thing in Cuba, where, of course, the, the regime there has alternatively completely shut down the Internet um, but then, you know, it's come back in spotty ways. But but the, the inability to, um, you know, get the word out to the international community to try to shut down that kind of communication seems to be a common thread between these two regimes. Um, yeah, well, 
I think um, Lukashenko perfectly understood that he lost control over the internet in the past years. Um, he keeps kind of state media, state-run media under control, but then the internet is kind of not really uh, the space, the field where he, he was able to kind of become, uh, to monopolize, right? Um, the internet uh, for the past years became a really kind of free platform for, for people to speak out, to communicate with each other. And then the power of Telegram. Telegram is a um, social kind of messenger where you can, you know, communicate with people, but you also can create channels that can have a lot of followers and you can spread a lot of kind of information. And then we knew that um, the internet would be shut down because that's something uh, during the elections, because that's something that Lukashenko has already done a few years ago. So we were preparing for that. And many people installed all these circumvention tools um, to kind of still have access to to, to those channels. And that's why when the, the internet was shut down in the first three days of the, uh, like on the election night and right after the elections, everybody switched to Telegram because people needed information about what was happening across the country. So all these kind of Telegram channels that people already read, that people already have been reading and getting information from became even more popular. People trusted them. Unlike perhaps in other countries, social media in Belarus is perhaps one of the most trusted sources um, because it's not controlled by the regime. And then you have this Telegram channel called Nexta, which became the most popular one. It had um, almost 2 million subscribers um, you know, around the election time. And Roman Protasevich was editor-in-chief of this, of this Telegram channel. That's why Lukashenko became so angry with him because firstly, it was super popular. It gave information to people about the protests, about where people could gather. So Lukashenko all of a sudden blamed Roman Protasevich for organizing protests. And Roman is just a blogger. He was just spreading information. So Lukashenko is ready to blame technology, not himself, not his kind of mismanagement and, you know, everything that he has done, um, uh, but, but, but basically technology. And what we see now, these repressions against journalists, because basically every independent media outlet has been destroyed. Um, journalists are being, um, you know, detained, arrested basically every day. Um, since last year, there have been more than 500 cases of detentions of journalists. Many of them were injured, tortured, beaten. Uh, people were, sh my, my colleagues, journalists were shot with rubber bullets. So um, Lukashenko just wants this information, wants to hide information. He doesn't want people inside the country and outside the country to know, to see what's happening in Belarus because, well, the information is something that provokes a reaction of the West or of, of people inside the, the country. So he perfectly, perfectly understands the, gen, the danger of this information and he just wants to um, silence journalists, people, you know, every kind of social group that, that was vocal and that was um, speaking out against him. Women have played an unusual, I should say, or, or a role in, in these protests. I mean, early on, you saw um, them putting their bodies in between uh, the, the security forces and, and the, the domestic police that were beating protesters um, and men, knowing that those, um, you know, those videos uh, would be 
would encourage more people to get fed up with the regime if, if they saw the male soldiers and policemen beating female protesters. Um, you know, where where are and I know the the women in white um, again another sort of similarity in, in, between these two countries halfway around the world the women in white are coming out again um, as as a form of protest just just today right um, and yesterday you know what what is the role of women been in in this this whole protest and and how um, have they played a, a unique part in in continuing um, I guess hope for the protesters and and also in in creating these kinds of, of information and, and images that uh, when possible gets get out you know on social media and around the world actually today july 16 is a very symbolic day uh, exactly one year ago uh, three women um joined forces so they stepped up um stepped in um kind of they they were behind those uh, electoral campaigns behind those potential candidates that were barred from running in the elections and there were some of them were detained. So Svetlana Tikhanovska was registered as a candidate um, but then she did not feel like she's able to run this campaign alone and then those two other women also joined kind of her and her efforts to tackle the regime in Belarus and that became such a powerful move uh, it inspired people so immensely that basically those three women became the symbol of this revolution. And um, they were able to unite also people across the country, perhaps for the first time. Uh, it, it was like the opposition, you know, democratic forces became united so quickly, so you know, strongly that, that people felt it and followed it. And then, um, because Svetlana Tikhanovska um, became, you know, this kind of symbol, this face of the protest, people voted for her, people wanted her. She also promised to them to have a free and fair elections. She did not want to be president. She just wants to bring justice, to bring um, kind of respect uh, to, to, to people, right, back. So so they felt it. They voted for her. Um, and um, um, then she ha- she was forced to flee the country. And what we saw afterwards, we saw torture, we saw violence, brutality. And then after those three kind of most um, darkest, you know, days in Belarusian history, um, um, women came out to the streets again. And the women were wearing white, uh, white clothes. They were holding flowers and riot police were completely shocked by that image. They did not want how to react. They felt confused. And that was a kind of pushback. And that was a moment when women were able to change the dynamic of the protest again, yet again. Um, and basically that's how this protest, you know, remained peaceful because women kind of became this really, really kind of strong symbol, uh, women in white. Um, and Firstly, they were not repressed, they were not arrested, but then the regime, I think now, might be targeting women even more in a way because um, some women are threatened with with, uh, their children being um, kind of taken away if they continue uh, protesting and and so on. So there are kind of many ways of how the regime tries to stop women from from, um, expressing their discontent. Nevertheless, uh, they are on the streets, 
very often they are very active. And basically many people say that this revolution has a female face. And there is a lot of truth uh, to, to, to it, this statement because, well, women just played an immense role. Um, what about what, what is the, the business climate? I mean, I guess my question is, what is Lukashenko going to have left uh, in terms of the, his ability to um, to have the, the funds that he needs uh, to, to pay uh, his security apparatus, to keep the oligarchs happy around him, right? Um, it, it seems like there's a flood of refugees now that are leaving Belarus, surrounding countries like Ukraine and, and um, Lithuania, have both received a lot of refugees and then are thinking about closing, and I think have closed, you can correct me, um, have closed the borders, uh, you know, What's the end game of, of this? Because it seems like people are are are, are, cu- are cutting off any avenue that the regime might have to actually sustain its power long term at the level that it needs to to be able to continually repress what seems like a broadly popular uprising against it. I think, well, firstly, economic predictions, even before the elections, were not optimistic at all. And there is stagnation um, and people feel it. And now because of this uh, general political and human rights crisis, um, not many investors are interested, right, in kind of investing in in such a country. Um, Then we have repressions. Then we have small businesses and medium businesses that are scared, that are being closed and people are being uh, put in prison. So they flee the country. Lukashenko was bragging for years about uh, uh, the tech industry, IT industry in the country, that it's booming, it has a lot of preferences. And um, now many of these tech professionals have to flee because they're being repressed as well, right? And it obviously affects the country immensely, reputationally, economically. And we cannot kind of predict the um, kind of level of this crisis, I think, right now. But uh, what is real is that, uh, well, many businesses have been uh, shut down already. Then we have sanctions, which also affect, again, uh, businessmen, again, uh, oligarchs, all these kind of funds that the regime um, is having, right, from, 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 from those businesses, large bu- businesses that are uh, controlled because, well, large parts of the Belarusian economy are, co- are controlled by the regime, by the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, um, we do not know, however, to what extent Russia is ready to support Belarus and, and Lukashenko and his regime. Last year, the Kremlin promised one uh, billion and um, basically one and a half billion um, dollars to, to, to Lukashenko. And there have been already two tranches of this, um, of this loan. Um, nothing more came, but still Putin most recently said that he's ready to support Lukashenko as long as it, this would be needed. And we don't know what Lukashenko would be giving in extent, kind of um, in exchange for this support. So all these processes are very disturbing, firstly, because uh, it affects people. Um, people just lose their businesses and have to flee. But also uh, because Lukashenko is ready to sell independence um, of the country because he just needs to stay in power. And, um, yeah, we just... We just um, Kind of, it's uh, it's disturbing to see, you know, uh, all these kind of um, processes that are going on. Yeah, what, what is the role here uh, that Putin and Russia 
play. Obviously, um, they're the the big player in that that region. Um, as you said, Putin has publicly supported Lukashenko after originally there was mm-hmm. a period of time where it seemed like it was possible that um, Lukashenko's regime might be more trouble to Putin than it was worth, um, and people at least hoped that that might be the case. But those those hopes seem to have faded. Um, what would it What would it take? Uh, to to make it not worth it um, for for the Kremlin uh, to continue to prop up the the Lukashenko regime. Well, firstly, um, Lukashenko is becoming very toxic for both Putin, for the Kremlin, uh, for the West, for Belarusians, even for for those people who are lo- still loyal to Lukashenko. And um, it's very important to show that the price, the costs of supporting Lukashenko are um, going to be more expensive for Putin, for the Kremlin, basically, for Russians, uh, to show that it's not worth it. Putin is um, not a big fan of Alexander Lukashenko. I think uh, we all know that. Um, but he just um, hangs to, has to kind of hang around because there is no alternative uh, that Putin considers um, kind of feasible for, for Russia. Um, because he thinks that every opposition candidate is a kind of pro-Western and that, uh, you know, it's, it's a kind of, um, he's scared of this. Um, also he's scared of protests, of this revolution, kind of, of, um, toppling a dictat- dictator through street protests, because that might be a bad, example for Russians uh, to do the same in their country. So that's why Putin is interested in the status quo. Um, but um, again, I mean, more should be done, obviously, from on the side of the West uh, to, to show Putin that any agreement between Lukashenko and the Kremlin would not be considered, would be basically kind of reconsidered in the future. And um, that the, the price of support is just um, has to be very high for, for Putin. You know, um, just like in in Ukraine, there's this kind of information warfare about what the protests actually represent, right? Um, Whether they represent a move towards liberal democracy or um, whether they are, let's say, uniquely concerned with getting rid of Lukashenko and his particular regime and his particular band of oligarchs. Um, You know, what, what is your take on what the protesters ultimately want to see in in Belarus? Um, I think there is no, well, we cannot really, it's not comparable to the situation in Ukraine. Um, It's not comparable to any other situation. I think the situation in Belarus is very much black and white. People want democracy. People want a new, free and fair, transparent elections. People want to have their voice be respected. And that's what they've been showing for the past year. Um, this is not a geopolitical choice. This is, uh, at least for now, this is not about uh, choosing between the West, Russia, or you know any other direction. Um, this is a very much internal issue. And um, as I said, this evolution of the society, um, the vol- evolution kind of, 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 of minds and kind of values is very important. Belarusians have shown that they want uh, Western values, right? As kind of we usually call them. They want democracy and they want um, 
um, you know, human rights, their rights basically be, be respected in the country. So that's, I think, a very much legitimate um, demand. Absolutely. Um, so you've, you've been diligently covering this for more than a year. I've been following you on Twitter. I recommend that anyone who's interested in, in what's going on in this part of the world follow you as well. Uh, is there a story or a particular um, incident that you ended up covering that stands out in your mind as either something that um, left a, a mark on you over time uh, or or is something that you think is particularly representative and, and important to understand for people who might be just starting to discover um, that the, the Belarusian people have been struggling for their freedom and their democracy for more than a year? Um, in August, when I was in Minsk and I was covering protests, um, we basically, well, myself and my colleagues, always had to have a toothbrush, a spare pair of socks, a spare T-shirt, because we were not sure whether we would sleep tonight at home or in jail. So that's something that... Um, We've chosen this profession as journalists um, because we want um, people to know the truth. Uh, we want to help people to get you know, objective newsroom information and real kind of information, real facts about what, what is happening. But then you just understand how, how dangerous it, it actually is. I've lived in Belarus for um, kind of for years, obviously, and then I it was never um, a free and safe country for journalists. But then you would never expect a real war in um, kind of real war zone, basically, in your city, which is a very kind of quiet, calm city. Um, and, yeah, you just end up uh, kind of almost in a conflict zone where you are being shot or tear gas being applied, kind of applied against you. So it was very dangerous. We were running. Um, at the same time, I just remember this um, moments when I was covering, I was kind of approaching protesters and they were thanking me. They were saying, well, thank you for what you are doing because it's so important. There were moments when we were almost uh, detained by police and then people surrounded us and prevented us from being detained. They just kind of, Put journalists inside the circle, and that's how police uh, were not able to to drag us to to to, to a police van. It gives so much power, uh, so much enthusiasm, and so so much kind of motivation and encouragement. And then you just understand that uh, well, um, the, your work is super important. So that's something I think that uh, this past year um, changed, right? My kind of understanding of the profession, of what what I do, and how important journalism is. Hannah, thank you so much for uh, joining us here on High Noon. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this very special episode of High Noon. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon. No, Ya no gritemos patria o muerte, sino patria y vida.